as I started to understand that, and I started to understand what the implications of what technology makes possible are, it then became clearer to me that it was the answer. Like, like you, you know, I care very deeply for the country I'm from and from my continent. We've had a very checkered history <laughs> and we've had a very troubling time, despite the amount of talent. And all of a sudden, technology has just introduced this dynamic where you can have young people who choose a share wheel and their ability to work really hard. Um, and obviously, some a little bit of the grace of God, for sure. They are able to achieve things no one else has ever seen. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Red, and welcome to the Betting on Yourself podcast, where I interview successful entrepreneurs, athletes, and other top performers who rose to the top, took success into their own hands, and bet on themselves. Today, I'm talking with Ian Abuyeji, named one of the top most influential Africans by New African Magazine and co-founder of Andela, Flutterwave, and Future Africa. In this episode, we talk about Ian's decision to commit his talents and career to the future of Africa instead of Silicon Valley, owning his professional goals, his incredible startup success, building the first unicorn company on the African continent, and his childhood growing up as a pastor's kid. Ian is a man of true and deep faith and one who is extremely accomplished in business. His transformative vision for the future of Africa is incredibly inspiring and completely practical. This is a special episode on the podcast. Here's my conversation with Ian Abiyeji. Ian, I want to thank you again for being a part of the podcast today. Now, do you prefer Ian or do you want to be called E? Everybody calls me E. <laughs> I will call you E then, my man. I will awesome. call you E. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you on. And uh, a dear friend of ours, uh, Kaylor Zipperston, is, is, has connected us and so appreciate him. And I'm grateful for the fact that uh, he, uh, he connected us, man. Same here. Same here. I've, I've only read of you and watched your old games. So a pleasure to be, uh, to be invited. <laughs> no, thank you. And, and the operative word in that was old, old games. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's good, man. I think you know the theme of the show and, and, and I think you exemplify it uh, as much as anybody about betting on yourself. What has that meant to you? Um, hmm to bet on yourself? You know, I had a very interesting experience when I was kind of coming up in my industry. You know, I remember, you know, I just left the University of Waterloo and I was really desperately looking for validation from Silicon Valley. And I was still very passionate about doing something in Africa, building technology businesses in Africa. And I remember talking to this mentor friend of mine and he basically just said, out of the blue, cut that crap about Africa. There's no opportunity cost for investing in Africa. And I thought about that statement for a minute because if you're not an economist, you might not really understand what he just said. But for those of us who are an economist, and I'm sure there's a lot of them on the call, basically what that means is there is no, like you're not missing out on anything if you're not investing in Africa. And, and that was the day I decided that, you know, my time... Uh, in the valley was numbered, and I had to go back home and prove this very well-intentioned person 
completely wrong. Um, and for me, you know, two unicorns later, um, I'm glad I did. Was there something inside of you that said, I have to establish home first before we go even global? I think it was deeper than that. I think for me, it was just like, there isn't a place for you in global, not just because the problems that you identify with are in global problems, <laughs> quite frankly, but because the challenges at home are far deeper and perhaps required a lot of these thinking even more, the technology even more, but many people weren't willing to give the market the same level of attention. Um, and I think for me, it was about thinking about the challenges I had at home and figuring out how do you channel, channel those challenges, which are very unique, into solutions that can scale globally. And I think that's the track record we've been on. When we um, built Andela, which was my first very successful company, the big idea was just, you know, you've got this technology thing and not enough people who can actually build things on the internet. How about you train all this talent in, in Africa where there aren't enough jobs and the economies aren't growing fast enough to employ people? At least they're not growing as fast as the internet is. And train people to take these new jobs because there was no legacy jobs, no minimum wage to compete with you there. And, and that was how I thought about, about solving that problem. And that allowed us to build what is now a global technology company um, with engineers from all over the world working remotely for hundreds of technology companies around the world with Andela. And the same thing with Flutterway, really. It was merchants need to accept all these different payment methods and um, they don't have any, any resources to like go integrate each payment method one after the other. And, you know, we kicked off this movement around being able to accept multiple different payment methods on the same page without even being an engineer or technical. And, and that, that started as a trend. And now, you know, if you go to Stripe, Stripe accepts multiple different payment methods. Um, you know, and if you go to PayPal, PayPal accepts multiple different payment methods. But that wasn't always the case. So that just gives you a sense of how we think about it. Take me back to your origin, the genesis of your life. Uh, you and I have something in common. We are PKs, pastor's kids. We are PKs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so we yeah. we have that in common. And there's, a, there's a, I think, a privilege that's attached to that more so than, the, than anything else. Um, talk about how faith, your family dynamic growing up kind of shaped who you are now and where you are right now. Yeah. I mean, I think for me... One of the things about being a PK, and I'm still one. My father is now a, <laughs> is now a, he's gone a long way from a pastor and he leads a 250,000 person congregation across 4,500 local churches. <laughs> it's a, yeah. the whole movement yeah. now. And yeah. um, one of the things is just, you know, we started out very early being symbols of sacrifice. Um, so, I mean, for my father, that meant, you know, he worked, but he mostly worked simply to give to the church and to make sure the church was, was sustained. You know what I mean? Yep. For my, um, my, my, my 
my mother, um, she worked just so the church was sustained. They didn't have a lot of time to spend with us versus other people's kids. And so you grew up being accustomed to making deep sacrifices for the betterment of a lot of other people. And I think that's something that continues to make a deep impression on me. It's never, you know, you're willing, you're, you're basically taught from day one uh, to think it's normal to just rip up the shirt off your back and hand it over to somebody else and say, ah, oh, it's cool. You need to, <laughs> you need it more than I do. Or even if you don't, it doesn't matter. You just, you, I want to give this to you. Um, and it shaped kind of my approach to entrepreneurship because, um, you know, I'm, uh, I feel like particularly when we're talking about the kind of problems that we try to solve and the, the terrain, um, what has helped us win every time is that we're willing to make deeper sacrifices than anybody else will. And that's always paid off. That's incredible um, to hear your origin and your foundation. Um, and it, it really launches us into who we are now. Did you always have vision to see where Africa is now as far as expansion, growth, uh, entrepreneurship, tech, venture, private equity? Do you always have this vision? Where'd that vision come from? I mean, I, I, I'll say, you know, for a long time, I didn't have this vision. I mean, for a long time, it was really just about, you know, getting out of Nigeria. I had a very traumatizing experience in childhood where I watched, you know, quite a number of my classmates die in a plane crash where no one got um, punished for it. So, so this whole plane crash. So I think that really biased my view of Nigeria for a very long time. So when I, when I managed to get out to Canada, I never imagined I'll go back. I actually wasn't planning to. But you see, what I think changed for me over time was that I started to deeply understand technology beyond the surface level of, oh, this can make you rich, this has made other people rich, to really see it for how transformative it can be, how much it levels the playing field. You know, with social media, everybody truly has one voice with one account. You know, very recently, my president's tweets got deleted. And just like mine can too. Like, and, and only technology can make me and the president of my country, you know, <laughs> on the same playing field in any way. So that's just an example with, with how transformational technology can be in terms of giving people outsized power and bringing down um, people who are thought to be um, um, extremely powerful to the same level as we are. And as I started to understand that, and I started to understand what the implications of what technology makes possible are, it then became clearer to me that it was the answer. Like, like you, you know, I care very deeply for the country I'm from and from my continent. We've had a very checkered history <laughs> and we've had a very troubling time, despite the amount of talent. And all of a sudden, technology has just introduced this dynamic where you can have young people who choose just share will and their ability to work really hard. Um, and obviously some, a little bit of the grace of God, for sure. They are able to achieve things no one else has ever seen. And when I saw it play out, um, at Andela was when, um, you know, we had all these young people coming into the program that we were trained. And when, when we brought them on board, we would ask them a question, you know, what would you like to earn? 
and they will tell us 150,000 naira, which is like 300 bucks a, a month. And today, you know, half of them live in Amsterdam, the other half live around Europe, you know, sadly, because they should be here in Nigeria, but the environment isn't as conducive, no, uh, but, but it's getting better. And what I would notice is these young people, they have never imagined a world where they would be earning $100,000 a year, $150,000 a year. They thought it was crazy for them to even imagine that. But because of the transformative power of these technology skills that they have, you know, there they are today. And, you know, I think about that in the context of the companies we built. I remember in 2016, they had this tiny office in Lekki, Lagos, where we built Flutterway from. And today it's a, you know, billion dollar company, you know, across 33 countries. And then one would have never imagined that from day one. And I think as I've continued to experience how transformative technology can be, how crazy its reach can grow without any prior infrastructure, I've come to recognize it as the solution to Africa's problems. And, and so I imagine a world where, you know, despite the tough hand we've been dealt as a continent, we can take the challenges that we've been handed by, you know, geopolitics, nature, poor leadership, whatever you name it, and turn those challenges into global business opportunities. Wow. It's safe to say that you think technology and you know technology will solve everything. I mean, I don't want to say everything. Uh, because there are things that you need people to solve. <laughs> but I think technology will, will guide us to where we need to go. Yeah. Um, um, you know, what technology has given us the ability today as a country, for example, Nigeria used to be known as an oil producing country. But today we're transforming from an oil producing country to a talent producing country where we're growing software engineers out of almost nothing. Um, we're building products that are billion dollars with just talent, raw talent. Um, and I look at that and I say, you know, many of us, I mean, people with our skin color, Michael, you know, we built the infrastructure the world relies on today, you know, whether, you know, through illegal labor and slavery. And I wonder what it would look like if we can also build the virtual world, but this time on our own terms. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I see it. That's, that's why it's so important um, that technology is part of um, that answer ultimately to the destiny of people of our color and our race all around the world. Yeah, beyond optimism, I hear determination and focus. And I think that's been a hallmark for you, you know, in your career. Talk about being the first, you know, basically the first to build a unicorn on the continent of Africa. And talk about that experience and, and who inspired you? I mean, I, I, I get my inspiration from many places, both people on the continent, people, people around the world, you know. And I think for me, um, you know, when I think about, you know, what we've been able to achieve um, um, on the continent, you know, on our way here, we had a lot of people tell us, you know, you just got to settle for being a zebra. I think that's what they used to call it, a $100 million company. 
or be a gazelle, you know, just be a profitable company that's kind of moving beautifully. And there was just this culture of low expectations around what was possible on the continent that I'm glad that we flew open. Um, but, you know, I think there's another part of the experience which is very lonely because, you know, uh, for, for people like, like us who are very focused and determined, part of the, you know, what you could call a downside, to be very honest, is that um, you're willing to get this thing at all costs. And that could mean um, at the cost of your sanity, at the cost of your family, at the cost of, you know, your own well-being. Um, and you consider all those costs, um, you know, valid costs because of um, the goal that you're very, very set on. I, I think my father put it best. He said, look, my challenge with you is that e, when you set your eyes on something, you don't care if you have to um, basically walk through broken glass until you get to the other side. The problem is your feet might have to be amputated. <laughs> and, and sometimes you really do have to find that balance and really ask yourself again and again, what is the goal here so that you're not just yeah. to tunnel visions. But I think for me, I, I just have no regrets uh, for my own personal journey because the honest truth is um, I think it was worth it. Whatever price we had to pay was worth it. But it was these, are, these were expensive victories. People might never know the true story in the background of how we got here, but these were expensive victories. But I'm just, you know, I ask myself three questions whenever um, I set these goals for myself and for my team and for my tribe. And it's, you know, what matters most to me? That's the first question I ask myself. The second question I ask, help ask myself is, well, sure, but, you know, this matters most to you, but, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you willing to, <laughs> to give up um, to, get, to get that goal done, right? Like, what, mm -hmm. this matters, what are you willing to give up and what are you not willing to give up, right? Um, and then the most important thing is, you know, what is this going to make possible for those who try to tread this path right after you. And I think for me, the third question is usually what it boils down to. You know, you look at the indignities of uh, trying to do what we've done twice over the last uh, decade. And you can see how it's making it a more plausible conversation to invest in Africa. Um, and, and it all becomes worth it. We're, we're living a new reality. And I want to talk to you for a moment or ask you about the opportunities that have come about from it. Uh, obviously, uh, institutional institutional investors probably have dried up a little bit as far as their investment and has had an impact on the capital markets. Uh, what are you seeing in Africa right now with the opportunities? And is there an opportunity for, for the local community to get involved more so than investing in typical institutional and financial institutions? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, I, I see this thing kind of two ways, right? I think first of all is understanding that when you consider the macro dynamics of institutional capital, you know, and primarily we're talking Wall Street, the reality is they've run out of ideas and they've run out of ideas because now they have to do the unthinkable, which is invest in those people who they thought they saw no value in. 
And, you know, we live in a zero-interest world. And all the margin is in investing in underrepresented folks and in marginalized yep. communities, right? That's where all the alpha is because everything else is expensive or taken. And they, they're completely clueless about how to do this. Completely. <laughs> and the second aspect of it is the people from whom they've taken this capital over the years and leveraged their privilege to aggregate capital from firefighters, teachers, you know, car workers, you know, the poor people whose pensions <laughs> they've lived fat on and handed over to their friends over the years. Technology is giving them back their power, right? So you have this conflation of two important forces, right? Um, technology and regulation giving average people back their power to invest in problems that really matter to them, not what some, you know, manager thinks is important, <laughs> right? And at the same time, the reality of the only alpha left in the world being in places that, you know, most investment managers would rather imagine, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And perhaps don't even understand. And that's what opens the world for folks like myself, right? And that's what the opportunity I'm trying to capture today is really capturing those two lenses and saying, look, you know, finally, we can come to a table because now you need us. You need us to show you where the opportunities are in taking care of people who look like us as opposed to just exploiting them through hip-hop <laughs> or through sports, mm -hmm. right? And all of a sudden, you know, you got to sit at the table with us as equals, not talking down to us. And, and, but at the same time, the problem is, you know, the sand is shifting right before your eyes because the people who really hold this capital, you know, want to control how it's, you know, um, allocated. And <laughs> they want to have a say in how it's allocated. You know what I mean? So when you mm -hmm. put those factors together, I think where we're evolving into is a world where the aggregation of capital and the allocation of capital are two separate businesses. Technology will aggregate the capital and people will allocate their capital. But in the, in the middle of those two things, you need trusted advisors who have an understanding of the people whose capital this is and what they intend for their capital and an understanding of the structures and the commercial models through which that capital can be returned while still delivering social return, right? Commercial return while still delivering social return. And I think that's an exciting time for, for the world, not just for America. It's like 1920s all over again. Yep. No, I, I totally agree with you. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine last week about that. You're exactly right. Uh, talk to me about what's happening in Ghana and Rwanda and Pacific, specifically Nigeria. Yeah. You know, the, the, this bright spot. Those are bright spots, right? Vibrant yeah, cultures. They are bright spots. Um, a lot of things are becoming possible overnight. And it's so amazing to see because, you know, many, many times um, I've sat up and wondered, you know, this vision of an African future, <laughs> would it ever come through? But, but I, I want to talk to you. I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you what's going on in broad strokes. You know, the big master stroke that Africa made last year, intentionally or otherwise, is something called the Africa Continental Free Trade 
agreement. So while Trump is trying to pull us out of every trade agreement in the world, and the Chinese are trying to co-opt everybody into their Belt and Road Initiative, and Trump is throwing apart the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, Africa decided, look, we're not going to cave into nationalistic tendencies. We're just going to do what makes sense, which is gather the fastest growing potential market in the future and make it a single common market. And the headquarters of that institution is in Ghana and countries like Rwanda are tapping into the potential there. And entrepreneurs in Nigeria, because, you know, they're kind of like the American <laughs> spirit, the entrepreneurial spirit of the continent, are scaling their businesses across Africa. And I think the most important and the most interesting part of this is that we're calling our diaspora brothers all over the world, brothers and sisters all over the world, to come and participate in what is going to be an incredible time for wealth creation and value creation on the continent and around the world. And what's exciting about what's going on there is the export of talent and culture, right? Whether it's music, whether, like, now we have our own MBA in Rwanda. Yeah. You know, now, Nigerian talent is, is living in Ghana and in Rwanda. Countries are more open to kind of moving things around the continent. You know, economies are shaping up really quickly, becoming global investment destinations for Africa. This is, this is all happening in the space of, you know, 18 months. <laughs> So when you look at these markets, and I'm not saying this to say there aren't any challenges. There are many challenges. I mean, you saw uh, Nigeria is having a real democratic reckoning, um, which will be over in another two years or so. But it's becoming easier to invest in these markets. It's, and these markets are melding into one big common market with a potential 4 billion people over the next 30 years that will comprise the majority of the world's working population. So it's, one can only imagine what's possible in, that, in those scenarios. There's a shift happening globally. And I'll ask you this question because I feel like you have a pulse on this. Do you believe that we're moving from globalization? And if we are, what are we moving to? That's, that's a great question. You know, last year, you know, I, um, I told um, a group of business leaders in Nigeria I was talking to, I said, we're moving from an age of globalization to an age of platformization and decentralization, right? So what, what are the differences, right? So with globalization, you had everything centrally controlled, manufacturing in China, services in the US, right? And, you know, that came with its own costs and narratives. Now you're moving into a world where everything is a platform, right? Everything is just like a platform. And everything is decentralized, right? It's distributed, actually. I think that was the word I used. We're moving from glo a, a, a globalized economy to a distributed economy. So not just decentralized, but distributed. You can create incredible amounts of economic value on a small island and invite the world to participate with you through all the different technology tools that are possible. You're no longer stuck to geopolitical um, um, anchors in the way that you were in the previous um, century, if you can call it that. Now it's, it's a completely distributed world. 
right? And I can sit here in Nigeria as a current PG and manage a $25 million fund that invests all over the world from my desk in Nigeria. That was impossible a year ago. And I think as we all get back to work, this is going to become more apparent. We're going to move from a world where the center of the universe was the US or China to a world where anywhere can be the center of the universe. Do you sense that people are rethinking and reimagining um, methods? Um, and I'm not saying uh, a deceleration of thinking, but an acceleration of rethinking. I think those who are doing that, there are few people doing that. Uh, meanwhile, the the rest of the population is probably just mourning change <laughs> or trying to drag us back into the past. But those right. who are really putting on their thinking faculties and doing that are going to be the Zuckerbergs of the next decade, right? Everybody who's taking that conscious step to say, what does a distributed global economy look like? And venturing away from their comfort zones into parts of the world that maybe scare people, right? Um, and, and asking themselves really tough questions about what does the world look like when neither America nor China, but everywhere is the center of the universe. Mm. You mentioned the challenges. What are some of the challenges facing Africa today? But I, I'm a solutionist. What are the, some of the solutions? I love that. <laughs> I love solutionists. <laughs> um, I think I think there, there are many layers of challenges. I'll talk about kind of a couple, right? I think number one is talent and the amount of investment that needs to go into building out talent, not just for Africa, but for the world, right? There's so many new things that our youth are not prepared um, for about how the world is changing. And the, beauty th the beautiful thing though, um, with respect to solutions is, we're not, because we don't have legacy infrastructure of an education system here in Africa, we can build from scratch something that actually does work for the world. So we don't have to have six year you know, elementary school and four years of, uh, six years of high school and, and university for four years. We don't have to have that. Like we can just have kids learn how to read, write, and count, and go out there and solve problems from age ten. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but but you know, we we just need more talent that's thinking, that's empowered to think creatively about solving our problems. And given that the talent in Africa is more than half of the world's population, this becomes super super critical to the future. And it saddens me that not, more people are not thinking strategically in that way. You know, if you see a world that's changing, then the majority of the world's talent has to be trained in a way that allows the globe to move forward in, in the direction that we're already hurtling quickly towards, right? The second thing is really infrastructure. Um, Africa has a lot of pressing infrastructure challenges. But I think the difference between, say, where we are in Africa and, you know, where we were, say, you know, the last time we took on a global infrastructure challenge, like, you know, after the World War II, when, when we had the, the, 
the, the reconstruction plans in Europe. I, I forget what it's called now. Um, you know, we have better data for estimating where infrastructure is necessary, and we have better innovation for helping us ensure that we're investing all these, you know, funds into infrastructure that really does make a difference. And I think that that's something that a lot of people kind of miss, you know, when they talk about infrastructure in Africa. And to be honest, you know, it's a shame that we're talking about zero interest rates when there's all these infrastructure needs that can be profitable infrastructure in, in the U.S., um, in Africa, sorry. We need internet. We need data centers. We need roads. We need airports. We need new cities, you know. And I think there just has to be a more concerted effort to deploy infrastructure in smart ways, um, you know, across across the continent and real investment going into that. And then finally, you know, policy, right? Policy is extremely important. Many of the societies are tethering between, you know, democracy um, and, uh, and dictatorship, right? Uh, and many of the citizens, thanks to modern-day technology, are making choosing democracy very loudly. And I feel like more of us have to be supportive of that. More of us have to make necessary contributions. You know, one thing I, I often tell my friends, uh, both in Nigeria and the U.S., is something that's not said a lot in our country's history, for example, in Nigeria, is how much American returnees and Jamaican returnees had to do with Nigeria's independence and democracy movement at the beginning of the country and how much it set us on the right path initially when it came to democracy. And I hope that there can be a rekindling of, of that spirit where, you know, we're cons consistently inspired to choose the path of freedom, um, economic freedom and justice um, for all people. There's a quote um, that I often share about teamwork. Uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. I'm so inspired by your story as a young man, committed, dedicated to building your country. How important is this for this to be accomplished and to be done as much as about a collective effort? How important is that? I mean, look, it cannot be done without a collective effort. It's like the whole thing is, is, has to be a collective effort, you know? Because the reality is there's no one person who commands the talent. I got to engage the talent. And talent is the most important thing. You know, people like you that have a voice, people that you that have seen business, that have seen scale, it's so important that you're there to mentor those coming behind, right? It's so important that we have the capital. We got to put skin in the game too. And not all the capital is in Africa, if you're just looking at it from, people in Africa, but when you think about the African diaspora, we're trillion dollar people, maybe even more, right? And there's real capital that comes from us coming together and forging forward a path for the broader, you know, black race and the human race. Um, and, and for me, that's what makes collaboration so, so important, right? Um, and, and, and most importantly, at the end of the day, this is a, an agenda that will be defined um, 
by the amount of influence that we can exert as a collective. It, it, it cannot be an agenda that's determined by one person's preferences. It, it will fail. Um, it has to, to come together. And, and that's why, you know, last year I was very touched by the show of solidarity from across the world for NSAS protesters in Nigeria. Like it just showed that, you know, we're all part of one experience and that this thing was possible for all of us to do together. And, you know, I know that there are going to be further shows of solidarity. I know um, that Nigerians feel particular about the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, right? And, and being able to also um, show solidarity with our brothers and sisters um, in America who are facing, you know, challenges around the political environment. And I imagine that, you know, as we pick up each other's burdens from all over the world and unite as one um, diaspora, we could have a very, very, very powerful influence on the world in, in a very, very positive way. And that's what it's going to take. So well said. I, I, I want to ask you this question. What's next for you? So, I mean, for me, you know, what I'm spending a lot of my time focused on is really surfacing up the opportunity. Surfacing up the challenges, but also reframing them as opportunities and bringing together capital from all over the world to invest in innovators that are taking on Africa's challenges and turning them into opportunities. You know, and out of that, you're going to get the next billion, the next hundred billion dollar companies. And out of that, you're going to get the next, you know, 1000 innovators because these things compound on themselves. And out of that, you're going to be able to get um, a, a global, you know, black tribe of people. It's not a diversity and inclusion question anymore. It just becomes a, a, a question of influence um, and collective power. Um, and, and that's where we get to sit at the table, at the global economic table, when we're able to show up the way we should, the way we always should have shown up in our numbers with our talent, with our capital, with our resources. Um, and, mm -hmm. and the first project should be, how do we leverage all of that to transform the continent? Because I still believe, and maybe I'm wrong about that, that until the continent of Africa is transformed, the black man cannot have the world's respect. It just won't work, right? And, you know, there's so many stories of, of peoples, you know, like, uh, like, like the Jews in Israel, and many other people who've done this, the Asians. And I think we can do it for ourselves too. And so for me, the first step is really how do we surface up the challenges, but also re reframe these challenges as opportunities that the world can invest in so we can start something special from Africa. Because we know it's possible now. So we talked about the future. Let's talk about the past. What would you tell if you had any advice your 16-year-old self. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, the biggest, the biggest advice that I, would, that I would have for my 16-year-old self is, and, and maybe I'll, I'll share some context um, first, quickly. You know, when I, was, when I was 16, that was the precise age when, um, you know, I'd just seen a plane crash. I was just about to leave the country. I was very happy. I felt like I had to run away from, from Nigeria. But today, I think I'd go back there and say, you know, 
the challenges are always and forever going to be the opportunity, right? If you cannot take on those challenges and turn those challenges into opportunities, then quite frankly, you have no shot at making an impact on the world. I wish I understood that earlier because I would have avoided the whole somber dance of going to Canada. I'm not saying that it was a wrong decision to go to Canada, but going to Canada and trying to build a company to solve Canada's problems. When I knew that what I was destined to do was come back and face the monsters in, in Nigeria, the monster challenges in Nigeria, and build things to, 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 to fix them. And, you know, one of my friends actually came back to Nigeria and started an airline um, that's obviously going to be well run and it's going to be properly done and everything, you know. So I, I, I look at that and I say, you know, whenever I face, um, when a, my 16-year-old self should understand that whenever you face a challenge, it's just an opportunity. That's just the best way to look at it. E, it's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Wow. Just amazing. So honored to have had you on. Let's stay connected, man. And again, it was a privilege to have you on, my man. Absolutely. Same here. It was such a privilege to speak to you today. Thank you so much. And that's betting on yourself. Ian said, I've come to realize technology as the solution to Africa's problems. We can turn its challenges into opportunities. That quote is just a small peek into the robust and inspiring vision Ian possesses. It's infectious. I'm so glad you got to experience it in this episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ian. You can follow him on Twitter at iabayeji. Thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm Michael Red, And remember, betting on yourself is the secret to success.